2: Hello there, internet wanderers. Welcome back to another episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed, a clinical, a psychologist.
3: And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist.
2: Real Psych is a new podcast where we share our gorgeously thoughtful opinions on the psychological phenomena playing out in all of your favorite movies.
3: J.D., will there be learning? Mm Mm-hmm. Will there be science? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Will there be delightfully informal, explorational, informational conceptualizations from two best friends who would be talking about this anyways?
2: <laughs> oh, yes.
3: <laughs> oh, yes.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> One time I, uh, in high school, my friend Sarah's little brother, uh, if he's listening, uh, was saying that he knew the, the national anthem. Or it was my friend Sarah. Somebody, Somebody in her family did this. And was like, I know the Canadian National Anthem because I watch hockey all the time. And they were like, oh yeah, sing it. And they were like, oh Canada, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I still think about it all the time. Like, God, 20 years later, I'm still like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my entire life.
3: I mean, it was a good song. I would sing it. Oh yeah. I love it. How you doing?
2: I am I'm doing all right. I'm I'm just trucking right along. Good for I, you. I've had a really busy day, to be honest.
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel like like banter is hard when we when banter we record is, late at it's night. It's so
2: hard. I'm I mean, so it's,
3: tired. It's five
2: p.m. for me. It's not okay. even so late. I just had like meetings, meetings. I had meetings with meetings. I had my meetings had meetings, and my, oh my meetings gosh. had meetings.
4: You're so um, busy.
2: I'm so busy. It's what a it busy millennial. To important people. Where we're just so busy.
3: How does she do it?
2: I don't know. Not that well sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> not That's that the secret. Well sometimes that
3: is the secret. Honestly, I think, is just to not do some of those things well.
2: You and know, people don't talk
3: about it. People, people don't do talk, talk about it. You know, yeah. some of
2: the best advice I ever got was uh, in our first year in grad school together. Um, uh, somebody who was just a year ahead of us uh, gave. They, they did this thing where they'd make this little, like, pamphlet where all the second years would give all the first years some advice oh,
3: yeah, about what to yeah, think yeah. about.
2: And in that pamphlet, uh, somebody in my lab, Christina, her advice was that we all need to learn to selectively drop the ball. Yeah. And I think that is, like, such excellent advice.
3: I mean, because it, the ball gets dropped whether you want it to or not. A
2: hundred percent.
3: And if you are just, like honest with yourself about like I need to triage and, and yes. this needs to go by the wayside because I'm focused on this and be okay with that. Yes. Everyone would be a lot happier. And
2: Just being like you know what these are the things I'm choosing to just fully leave off the list. Yeah. And because I can either do everything terribly yeah, or I can do like four or five things okay and nothing else.
3: There's a I just rewatched like all of Parks and Rec and there's a good Ron Swanson quote quote oh yeah it's like don't half ass two things whole ass one thing yeah (laughs) it's true
2: it's true I mean sometimes I think like the idea I talk a lot with clients about this where they're like like I really should give it my 100% and I'm like really you're 100% (laughs) because like you have to like if we think of just your time as like the only metric of your effort right you've got to like sleep and eat and toilet and shower and like you know, engage in so many things. So, like, if anything in your life is getting like even 10% of your time, that is like a massive commitment. It's a lot. Yeah. It's so much. And like, I say that because people are like, oh, no, I should really like give it my all. And it's like, what's your all? Because like, let's scale it way back.
4: Mm-hmm. Maybe
2: your all is like literally four hours in a week. Maybe that's mm-hmm. literally what you have available for it. And that's totally fine. But yeah. once we like acknowledge, that like this thing is not as much a priority as like these other things, even though this thing is important. But giving something four hours a week, if you're like a real adult person, is so much of a commitment. You know what I mean? Like yeah, That's a totally. huge thing. I mean, this podcast, we don't spend an insane amount of time, we certainly don't give it our 100%, but we give it a lot. Like it comes, yeah. we do it every week. Uh, August will maybe have a little bit of a break. <laughs> but we do it every week, right? And like, it's one of those things that like, yeah, we don't give it everything, but we give it something, and we always do that.
3: <laughs> Speaking of, should we watch Let's a movie? Let's watch
2: a movie. Let's watch a movie and celebrate 10,000 downloads.
3: I love it. Uh, cool. Okay, so I chose the movie this week. Yeah, you did. Um, oh, crap. I didn't look up what year it came out. Hold, please. 2004.
2: Ooh, good year. Good year, good year.
3: Okay. This is the tagline. It's not super descriptive, but I'm starting off broad.
4: Uh-huh. So
3: this is the tagline. Uh-huh. Falling in love again and again and again. 51st dates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about Memory. Oh,
2: it's a great one. I've actually never seen this movie.
3: <gasps> oh, it's really cute. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you know, it's like Adam Sandler's golden era, but like it's a cute one, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore. Very cute. Classic. Love it. Um, it's a good movie. It's like you know, it's a fun rom com. Oh, uh, yeah, um, but there's also like, I mean, so the premise is that Drew Barrymore's character has anterograde amnesia. Yeah,
2: anterograde amnesia. We're gonna talk a lot after, about this, y'all. <laughs>
3: after after an accident, um, and that's like as opposed to these other movies, which I'm sure. There's so many amnesia love story movies, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Or soap opera pl- plots. Definitely soap operas. Um, but this is, like, a legit <laughs> type of, like, <laughs> mental disorder that happens. Um, and so yeah. I, I, I'm excited to talk about it because I think, you know, how do people with interrogate amnesia live a normal life? Yeah. How do they compensate? How do the people who love them... Yeah help them compensate. I think there's, like, a lot of really interesting... I mean, it's more neurological than, like, DSM. Yeah,
2: in my... Like, um, you know? In my uh, physiopsychology uh, class, um, the I remember the professor actually specifically talking about this movie because uh, she hits her head on the side, which is where mm-hmm. it would actually, like... That's where anterograde amnesia would most likely, like, result. Um, yeah, Y'all, I remember so much stuff from grad school. <laughs> I, I'm shocked sometimes. But I'm I I'm like, know. oh my God. I do remember I so stuff. many things that people's men.
3: <laughs> um, you want to know another tagline that I thought was funny because it was literally on the poster. Yeah. Um, this one is, imagine having to win over the girl of your dreams every friggin' day. That's on the
2: poster. <laughs> I mean, very Groundhog's Day. Yeah. Friggin. We need more use of friggin. Every friggin' day. I feel like we should put that in like academic writing. Yeah. Yeah. We should. This study is really friggin' good if you ask me. <laughs> but you're probably not gonna
3: What Every do, friggin What do I know? <laughs> Every friggin' p-value. Every
2: friggin' one. That's pretty friggin' significant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very excited to watch this movie for the first time, or I'm, maybe I've seen it and I forgot.
3: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Tell us when we return. Get it? Get it. If it comes back to an amnesia you. amnesia joke. Oh, I thought you were serious. Oh, I was making an oh, amnesia really? joke. Oh, really? Okay, well, <laughs> you got to check yourself. Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: you really didn't hear that okay great well with-
3: no i did hear it i did hear it but i was like and you know sometimes you forget if you th- i don't know it's like it's memory loss memory gaps not the same thing oh, we'll talk oh, about it I'm so glad
2: that that music that outro music is bringing us in we're gonna see you in just a moment
1: bye
4: bye
2: all right we all right. are back in the house
3: we watch this movie Guess who's back
2: in the house um racism click clacking about um <laughs>
3: Uh, I will say that watching this movie was very difficult, and then I had a bit of an existential crisis because I was like, I, so many of the movies that I watched at a very impressionable age as a woman from, like, 13 to 25, or at least, were, like, these broy comedies, and you know, I just remember like watching Family Guy in college on someone's futon totally. and like just all of these things. And I watch back and I am horrified. Like, JD, let me ask yeah. you something. Do you think if 51st Dates does not hold up, because guess what? It does not, it does hold, not up. hold up. It does not hold up. Do you think like Anchorman, uh, Boondock Saints, All of these movies that were prominently displayed in posters on my college dorm room wall, you think they're problematic as well? Here's the thing.
2: I do think we need to hold a candle light vigil for straight women the world around. Because I've never thought those (laughs) movies were good. And it's not because... Listen, it is not because I think I am somehow smarter or better or more aware than you as a person. It's because I have not had to spend time in the culture of straight men in a very long
3: time. Yeah. I have had a reckoning. This movie was this hard. Movie it was- like even my, you know, straight white boyfriend watching this was like, oof, oof that doesn't really.
2: <laughs> I actually am gonna I'm gonna quote a bit of our side chats because I sent you a tweet uh, that on that that I saw on Instagram <laughs> that was somebody named. Nah. At Home Halfway, who tweeted, damn, girl, are you a kid's movie from my generation? Because you're fun and cute, but also horrifying in many ways I did not originally (laughs) realize. And I said this to Joanna, and Joanna, can I quote you to the podcast? Joanna
4: said, or
3: a
2: beloved movie from my 20s that I watched with all my guy friends and thought was funny, but watch again and realize it's misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, and perpetuates horrible stereotypes, to which I replied, ha 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 can't wait to chat more about that <laughs>
3: because <laughs> that has been honestly a lot of my a lot picks. of a lot of picks
2: not just yours mine too
3: yeah yeah I'm trying to hold myself accountable but well, let's you know let's
2: as I said I don't think that you're you know I, I don't want to say you're not accountable but I also want to name like right? a lot of these
3: it's not my fault but it is my it's burden. not
2: your fault but it is your problem <laughs> yeah, yeah right it is your burden <laughs>
3: And we need to get our... Yeah, I I just love that quote, and we I need to get it right. Well, well no, it, it well. is your
2: burden is the nicer way of saying it. The first time I heard somebody say it, they said to somebody, it's not your fault, but it is your problem, which is like, whoa, <laughs> it is a little dark. So we changed it to, you, you were much better. You were burden? much... Yeah, okay. it is your burden.
3: Okay. That's how I feel. So I had, like, a little crisis <laughs> watching this movie. I will say that, like, the love and the chemistry, like chemistry the love there like the love story is sweet i don't know maybe i'm just like in no, a it is place, sweet it is was quite like, cute. it's like a cute like love story but it's also i forgot how it started like with all of these women yes like, let's go yeah into yeah let's synopsis. go into let's synopsisize this but it's like it starts open on all of these different women recounting their amazing hawaiian yeah. vacation with this man henry
2: harry Henry, Har- harry. harvey hank we don't even care. Literally, We're going to call him Adam forget. Sandler. Adam Sandler. <laughs> We're just going to call him um, Adam
3: Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> like how, you know, they had the best week with him. He, you know, is this like amazing lover Person that like transformed them, but then at the end of the week, like they had to leave, and he had to go off on some, you know, some excuse that he gives them that they can never speak right. again, he can't even give them his phone right. number. Um, and so we're s- then we like cut to Adam Sandler, and you're supposed to believe that this guy has rocked the worlds of all of these women. Uh, and uh, he's like a vet at a sea life aquarium, yeah, place. yeah, some
2: sort of. Aquarium um, in, in Hawaii Which is like a fun
3: Part of the movie uh, Crossing my fingers That these animals Were Can I just humanity, say Which I'm sure I They also, were
2: lot. Lo- the walruses Are a big theme In this He's really obsessed With walruses And I gotta say Y'all I Being who I am This is why We have this podcast I actually also spent A significant amount Of time just researching Walruses To learn more About walruses And um,
3: you love animals. I do too. love animals. I feel like that's a on lot. Brand it's for very you. on
2: brand. I'm not going to share that on the podcast. Feel free to send a DM, and I'll give a nice little video about what I learned about walruses. Maybe we'll put we'll put it on the on the Instagram feed. I'll do a little yeah uh, yeah do live, non live in the stories because dang, yeah. I learned some stuff about walruses.
3: Yeah, but basically, so you're supposed to like believe that this guy is this kind of Casanova yeah. who doesn't want to get attached yeah. to women um, because he was literally cheated on once by his girlfriend in college. Yeah. And, um, you know, therefore he has every right to treat women yeah. horribly. Um, he got hurt he one time, Joanna. Ugh, I mean, isn't that every villain's, like, origin story? Uh, he- no, but he has this friend, Rob Schneider. Oh, God, who here it goes. I will say that he is of Filipino descent that does not, that's not the same as Hawaiian. Not the same as native Hawaiian. Um, he uses an accent throughout this movie that is offensive. He's in brown face. Um, yeah. He has one it's dead eye. great. Yeah.
2: A um, bunch of and children.
3: So, yeah. He's supposed to be the kind of uh, comic relief but honestly most of his he's also like very interested in adam sandler's sexual exploits um he's just very cringy and hard to watch throughout the entire film i mean he's
2: literally dirty
3: yeah (laughs) literally
2: dirty he's a mess he's cheap because he's I guess mm-hmm. he's either cheap because he's poor or he's just cheap because he's cheap because he needs stitches, and he goes to Adam Sandler who's a vet to sew him up which let's not even right look at what that is symbolizing but <laughs> uh and then also he has uh uh a, a large domineering wife who he doesn't yeah, who love he,
3: like constantly disrespect in front of his children yeah it's um, bad
2: so that's it's, pretty oh gross. also he's in brown face I, did I say that already Yes, oh, I, it's worth saying twice but, uh, it,
3: it bears repeating yes I will say that you know he is the horrible part of this movie there's also a colleague Alexa <laughs> that I forgot about- is so problematic and I literally like I had a conversation with my boyfriend we were watching this and I was just like this poor actor like I feel like I don't know if like she regrets this role or something, but I feel like this was this was written without any compassion towards women, towards
0: Mm-mm. gender at Mm-mm. all, Mm-mm.
3: like I just, towards sexuality, like it was Mm-mm. just so gross and poorly written mm-hmm. that I just wanna like, maybe we can just name both of those characters as like hugely problematic, very poorly yeah. written, and maybe just leave it. I mean, I'm gonna
2: talk a lot about race so we'll we'll, yeah. we'll revisit it we'll revisit that but for but the rest of our plot talk about they're non-essential the, yeah, so we're gonna leave them out the but name that like yeah. we'll get to them y'all
3: yeah so anyways so we see that Adam Sandler goes to uh, this like diner one day and he sees Drew Barrymore yep. and she's adorable and like building a volcano with her waffles mm-hmm. and he's like enamored with mm-hmm. her um, and goes to hit on her and she's actually just like she kind of you know takes him by surprise he finds himself kind of charmed by her um but the people who run the diner are very protective of her um and you know kind of like tell him to knock it off but they make a plan to meet the next day um for for Mm -hmm. like breakfast again they meet the next day she has no idea who he Mm -hmm. is And he is very confused by that, thinks it's, like, a tactic or whatever, and the people who work at the diner have to kind of explain to her. And we find out that the owner of the diner was Lucy, Drew Barrymore's character's best... uh, Mom's best friend. Right. And her mom had passed away. Uh, Basically, we find out that Lucy had been in a car accident a year before Mm -hmm. and has lost her ability to uh, remember new things. And so... Adam Sandler is like, okay, well, you know, guess that is what it is. Tries to, like, return to his life. Right. But he can't stop thinking can't about stop her. Can't stop thinking
2: about her. She's not like other women, those boring old hags. She's interesting.
3: Right. She's special. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so then he tries to go back and kind of woo her, makes a bet with the the chef of the diner, and is trying to get her to invite him to have, like, breakfast with her. Right. Um, and it's like, some days it works, some days it doesn't, um, you know, hijinks ensues, like montage of him trying to, you know, woo her at breakfast ensues. Um, but then, uh, she gets, she sees like, there's this cop outside, he's writing her a ticket for her car. Yeah. And there's this whole thing that transpires, which she realized, or she, uh, is, it's like revealed to her that, um. The date is not what she thinks. Right. It and is. she's
2: she comes and to she realizing to, that uh it's just she goes home and her dad and brother explain to her and she has she's a mess and they call it one of their bad days, right? Because every day her right. dad and brother are reenacting the same day. They give her the same paper. They paint the same, they paint the walls white so she can paint a mural. They watch the same movie, which of course, because it's a, you know, whatever, is The Sixth Sense. So of course it's a movie with a twist. And she keeps being like, wow, right. could you ever believe that was the twist? And the dad and the brother are like, no, yeah. I really couldn't believe that was the twist.
3: They have to watch like a videotape of the same Vikings movie Right, game. she thinks it's her dad's birthday like,
2: every day. Like, right. and so they're, they're and caught so in this loop.
3: Right, they're trying to accommodate her Without having her, like, confront this horrible tragedy that's happened to her every day. So that kind of uh, illuminates, like, to Adam Sandler, okay, this is what's going on. They end up, like, going to the doctor, played by Dan Aykroyd. Uh, to confirm the diagnosis. She, and, she, and, uh, they,
2: and when they do this, they're like, yeah, she's there again, right? So they've had this before right. when he's told her that she has anterograde amnesia. What is the syndrome? They call it a something syndrome.
3: They call it Goldfield, Goldfield syndrome, syndrome, which is which not does a. does not thing. exist.
2: I did Google it. I yeah. did Google to see if it was a I thing. Also okay, did, great. Yes. See, this is top tier journalism you're getting here. <laughs> <laughs> Two sources confirm it's not real. Yep. So yeah. uh, she they do that and Adam Sandler come, and she has such a bad day about it and Adam Sandler um, comes up with the idea to create like a videotape for her to every day sort of orient her to the fact that she has on terror grade amnesia what happened? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and eventually like includes himself in that video to say like we're dating I'm your boyfriend and the son and the brother you know are, actually realize like she sings after she, she sees him like she really does like him
3: on days when she meets him she sings like There is some positive impact and positive intentions that he has. So they kind of come around to to him. being. They come
2: around to it. They start to build a relationship. He's really happy. And then she eventually decides that this is not okay for him. Right? She's like, if I love you, you're the person who makes me fall in love with you every day. But the problem is, like, you have to do this every day. And I don't want you to have to do this every day. So it's a burden. burden, And he wants to go see walruses in the north he wants to take his boat a sailboat oh, yeah he
3: has his dream to go up to right.
2: the north which okay anyways and <laughs> so she says she's writing him out of her she also has started taking her own journal so she does a journal every night that she also reads so he's made this videotape to show every day and she's actually also orienting herself with a journal
3: yeah um, with her own words yeah
2: in her own words and she tears him out of her journal wah, wah, wah. Everybody's very sad. Mm -hmm. Then one day he finally decides like, screw this. I'm going to come back. And he goes and he finds her in an art class. She's now doing much better, right? She has a life. She's actually built a life where she's teaching art. And he introduced herself and she says, what's your name? And he says, "Uh, Adam Sandler.
3: Henry. Henry. How? Roth.
2: Henry Roth.
3: I think it's Henry Roth.
2: And uh, she goes back and she says, what's your name? And he tells her Uh, she doesn't know and of course as the audience being like is she gonna know she doesn't know but then she takes him into her studio and shows that she's like I've been dreaming of you every night and she's been painting pictures of him it's very sweet cut to the end of the movie this is the fastest we've ever synopsized anything cut to the end of the movie and uh, she wakes up sees a video explains everything and then he says by the way like you know put on a coat because it's cold outside and she wakes up you think it's Hawaii the way they've dressed the room she wakes up and opens and goes out, and they're in the Arctic um, on a boat, and they have a child, and they're married.
3: Yeah, so they're, they're able to kind of move forward in there, or, you know, with Adam Sandler's not giving up his dreams, right? Like, they have a family. The dad is there. Like, they're creating a full life um, while trying to, like, accommodate her as much as possible.
2: Yeah. So that is this movie. So that's the that's film. That's the film.
3: Plus lots of problematic stuff. Don't worry,
2: I will lay into the problematic stuff. Why don't you tell us about some <laughs> psychology, Joanna? Tell us about some brains.
3: Yeah, well, it's more neuro, yeah, like neuroscience, neuropsychology, uh, because so we're using the term integrative amnesia uh, because that's really referring to this like inability to create new memories So the other
2: version of amnesia Um, that you see in like soap operas is called retrograde amnesia which means you are unable to remember your past and means you're not able to form memories of the future
3: exactly um however there are i wouldn't say this neatly falls into anterograde amnesia and i will tell you why but um, please dr whitkin one of the biggest one of the biggest things and i'll like kind of I want to talk about it a little bit more, but one of the biggest things is like how her memory very neatly resets mm-hmm. every yeah. day after she sleeps, mm-hmm. and that's just not really no. characteristic of anterograde right. amnesia. Usually memories last for seconds to minutes, maybe a little bit longer, but it's it's not this like you can remember everything from one day and then you go to sleep and you wake up and it's all totally. gone. Um and that's due to the nature of memory, how memories are stored. Yeah. As a disclaimer, it's not widely understood, like, or perfectly understood how memories are stored in the brain and retrieved. And, you know, it's a very complicated system. Or at least it wasn't perfectly Um, understood
2: until this podcast.
3: (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that, like, is really confusing, basically, about memory and the way that it is stored and maintained. Um, But basically, and I think we talked a bit about this in past podcasts, Mm -hmm. but just to like reorient. So we have short-term versus long-term memory. Mm-hmm. So short-term referring to, you know, things uh, lasting seconds to minutes, maybe hours, uh, you know, it involves like kind of keeping information in mind while you're trying to like do something um, or just, you know, things that, that happen uh, in a shorter yeah. period of time. Long-term memory refor- refers to things that have happened in the past um, that have been successfully Encoded. Mm-hmm. So there's this encoding uh, aspect to it when the memories are initially stored mm-hmm. um, and that can be retrieved mm-hmm. successfully. So that means the actual like activating of this memory, being able to bring it into conscious memory and, you know, talk about it, recall mm-hmm. it. Um, and so there's also different types of long term memories. So there's uh, declarative memory, which is your conscious memory, and that includes like episodic uh memories which is like memories of events, experiences. There's autobiographical, which is like very similar but slightly different in, in this respect that it relates to you specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and then there's semantic uh memory, which is facts, what words mean, historical events, mm-hmm. um, really relating to like facts and concepts about Is things. Semanti- is procedural um, memory
2: part of semantic memory? Okay.
3: Yes. Oh no. So then there's unconscious Uh, or implicit memory and procedural memory is often that can fall into that. So procedural is like remembering how to do things. So you can ride a bike without having to actively recall Mm -hmm. how to ride a bike. You can just kind of do it or play the piano or, you know, so these procedural things are like how to do things. And those aren't always things that you have to like actively recall Mm -hmm. and bring to the forefront of your mind in order to do Mm -hmm. them. They kind of become second Mm -hmm. nature. Um so that's how a kind of memory is uh, generally thought about or organized um and in Terra Great amnesia as we said so you have this inability to create new memories there's some evidence that suggests it's really this uh issue with encoding so turning things from short-term memory into long-term mm-hmm. memory um that initial time as opposed to because there's other ways of like you know forgetting things so people just normally forget Mm -hmm. things right there's this like natural kind of pruning of of your memories Mm -hmm. of things you don't use that often or just forgetfulness if they're not encoded properly this happens completely totally normally you know normally to everybody um but so there's something called like accelerated forgetting right there might be some issue with the way that we like remove memories Or, you know, like, forget things. Um, And so it's possible that there's, like, accelerated forgetting or issues retrieving memory. So maybe they've been encoded and stored, but you can't retrieve them. Um, But the evidence suggests that it's really this initial encoding Mm -hmm. that's impacted. Um, And while we have these, you know, these long-term memories that are prior to the event leading up to the amnesia are intact. Um, And so there's some areas of the brain that are involved here the biggest part is this medial temporal lobe. And so the place where Drew Barrymore points to on her head where the scar mm-hmm. is is exactly that that right. temporal lobe, that medial and temporal lobe. And they show lobe. it. They do so, show
2: a scan in the movie. Dan exactly. Does.
3: And so they so that is where the hippocampus is, which is something you may have heard of, it's like very important for memory. There's also something called the entorhinal cortex. So, that's part of the brain. It's very important for this kind of declarative memory. Um, And it's kind of this connection between the hippocampus and the rest of the brain. Um, And then the fornix is also involved. And that's um, leading, it's part of the limbic system, but it's things that are leading to the hippocampus. So, part of this like sensory or emotional part of the brain that is leading to this memory. Area. yeah all
2: and when, um, when we say temporal lobe that's like temple your temple basically is kind of where it mm-hmm. sits
3: yeah yeah like around, around and behind it there and mm-hmm. back because you have your frontal lobe which is like where your forehead is you have your occipital lobe which is that where lump. the back of your head uh-huh. is parietal lobe which is kind of sitting on top and the temporal lobe is kind of on the side both sides um and yes because you have two halves of your brain you have mm-hmm. a lobe on each side um and so there's some the causes really vary. Um, what we see, you know, in this film is is secondary to an accident or brain trauma, which is one of the ways that this can happen. Um, there's also diseases that can uh, lead to encephalitis or swelling mm-hmm. of the brain that can cause mm-hmm. damage to these parts of the brain. Um, trauma resulting from, you know, resulting in PTSD. Mm-hmm. There can be some kind of amnesia. Um, there's also uh, this. Syndrome called Korsakoff syndrome, oh, yeah. which is uh, in people who have alcoholism, really bad alcoholism, and suffer from very bad alcoholism, resulting in a vitamin B1 mm-hmm. deficiency, end up with this syndrome called Korsakoff syndrome, and they are unable to remember uh, new, you know, new things. Um, so, kind of another point in this movie where it's not as uh, realistic, although we don't know for sure, but. When we see this the the trauma or like the brain damage, right? We see a scar in one side of her mm-hmm. head, right? And so often if you see people who have trauma to one side or only one hemisphere mm-hmm. of their brain, the other half of the brain can often compensate. Mm-hmm. The, there's this concept called neuroplasticity. Yeah. The brain is incredibly uh, able to adapt and compensate for damage that has been done. And so, if the anterograde amnesia or the amnesia that Lucy is experiencing in this film is due solely to the brain damage, um, her level of amnesia or her inability to ever recover is actually not realistic. So, you might expect for her to get better at forming memories over time right. because the other half of her brain would likely compensate for at least some of right. that um, however if there is some like PTSD or there's you know like right. other issues that may impact you know her ability to form there new memories could be a, and so we a don't a really bilateral know
2: bilateral impact there's something called coup contra coup where the where when the brain when the head hits something the brain smacks against one side and then sort of re- re- what's the word re, re- Reverberates, reverberates or, or uh, rebounds no. that's what I was looking for rebounds Re, yeah. against the back right the momentum pushes forward and then bounces and so it is possible to have both sides hit um, pretty badly especially with something like the temporal lobes where they would do the same kind of job um, if she was hit right on the yeah. side it is possible not consistent with what they showed on the films where they do in fact right. show that it's just one side they show this
3: very like dramatic scar on just one side but yeah you're totally it's right possible. it's possible that there's yeah um, highly but unlikely generally. Yeah. Generally, if there is damage to one side of the brain, we would see some compensatory mm-hmm. kind of functioning. Well, and I think one of the over things time, that you know, you're
2: naming, right. Is not only this neuroplasticity, but also inflammation, you know, the swelling in the brain, you know one of the most common things is like the the improvement often is just happens as your brain as the inflammation goes down your brain is more able to do what it's supposed to do so like when you hear about people with like post-concussion syndrome like a lot of that stuff is just like the inflammation of the brain just has to chill and a lot of your own functions come back because one of the things that actually adam sandler has his own head trauma when he gets hit with a golf ball um mm. but and he's unconscious And, um, you know, one of the things that, like, we see a lot in movies is being, like, cold cocked, you know, with a gun or whatever, and you're knocked unconscious for however many minutes, and then you, like, come to and you're able to, like, fight the bad guys. And, like, those kinds of injuries, brain injuries are weird in that, like, usually if you're hit hard enough, you're unconscious, it either lasts for seconds or... Days to weeks to months, right? Like you're either in a coma, right? And so like, there's not a lot of this, like movies really downplay that you can like, oh, whoops, I got bonked, but I woke up an hour later and I was mostly okay. That like for something to hit you hard enough to knock you unconscious for an extended period of time, you're gonna need at least occupational therapy. (laughs) Like you're gonna need
0: need immediate
2: medical attention and movies, I think like in this, he just has a quick little fantasy, or whatever about Drew Barrymore, right. that I completely have forgotten what he fantasizes about. But
3: she's um, like super. Yeah, so a heart lot heart. of the
2: stuff when you I hear mean, about head injuries yeah. just will improve just from, like, with the, Joanna's right. Like, if something is permanently damaged, the other side of your brain will learn to compensate over time, or you just, the inflammation goes down. And so these kinds of things improve over time um, generally.
3: Yeah. However, like stuff like encephalitis can cause permanent damage. Yes. But If they if can alleviate like, the pressure, there's all could, sorts of things. Yeah, Watch yeah. Grey's
2: Anatomy. You learn all about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you drill a lot of holes in people's Great skulls, while, like on bridges and stuff, to be like, oh, <laughs> oh, we've got to reduce the 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 damage from the yeah, because if the swelling yeah. gets over, yeah, the pressure, it's a whole thing. Right. Um, so sometimes they'll remove um, pieces of people's brains just so the brain can like squish out for a little while, and then they'll be like, don't
3: worry, we'll put squish it back. Out. Yes. So that's the
2: medical. That's the medical term. You're totally right. Uh,
3: that's what Meredith talks about Swishing always. out um, but yeah no that's great uh, content yeah. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> from Grey's Anatomy Thanks. Um, there is also like some interesting uh, so you know we're talking about like declarative memory mm-hmm. like an ability to form new memories there is some variability in what type of memory is affected underneath that declarative memory umbrella mm-hmm. so like the the most okay so the most famous uh anterograde amnesia patient mm-hmm. is patient HM okay. which i'm sure you've heard about probably like, have you taken it yeah basically uh he had a long history of seizures and he got a bilateral lobectomy in both of, like his medial temporal lobes on both sides of his brain Wolf were removed. removed um and he was studied from 1953 to his death in 2008 wow Um, And so he lost the ability to remember things after just a few minutes. Um, But over time, it was revealed through, like, these, you know, they studied him for so long. They did, motor like, motor learning tasks, spatial uh, tasks, and it was revealed that he could learn some new skills, um, especially this, like, procedural versus uh, declarative memory. So, like, uh, there is some evidence that, people may remember how to do things, but they may not be able to tell you that they know how right. to do things. Or, like, there's this um, documentary that I found on YouTube. It's, like, really interesting about this musician, Clive Wearing. I uh, actually watched this, like, in college because Oliver Sacks, he's, mm-hmm. like, very famous. Hugely famous. Um, like, a uh, psychologist, uh, like, wrote about a lot of these memory... Uh, like patients with memory disorders. Mm -hmm. So Clive Waring, he has a seven second memory due to encephalitis Mm -hmm. that he had Mm -hmm. um, in his 20s. Uh, And he, as a musician, like he was able to remember, like to learn how to play new pieces of music Mm -hmm. and like his ability to like pick up on new pieces of music over time uh, was like faster and was able to wow. you know pick mm-hmm. them up faster, but he, if you showed him the music, he'd be like, "I've never seen that before." Right. So it's this like difference between what's consciously available to you and like what's kind of unconscious. Totally. Um, there's another patient who you know retained their semantic memory, so like could remember what words meant, uh, historical facts, but lost episodic memory and autobiographical mm-hmm. memory. Um, but there's another patient that retained their episodic memory but lost semantic memory. So they didn't remember what words meant, what historical events were, um, but remembered things about themselves. Wow. And so there is some variability. Totally. And this is just due to the nature of the causes, right? If there's brain damage, this is not like a clean cut kind of yeah. situation. There's different kinds of brain damage. It, a lot of this research has been super informative in teaching us like how memory works. A lot of our understanding of the memory system is based off of these case studies. So Um, much of what we know about the
2: brain is just because of strokes. Like people study strokes and where it happened in the brain so thoroughly just to be like, wait, Mm -hmm. everybody who had a stroke right here loses the ability to blah. And everybody who, like so like, it's actually one of the best things we get are like brain injuries and strokes in terms of understanding which actual, and this is like down to the fold of the brain, like which part of of everyone's brain does these things. Strokes are like the number one thing and they can go in and actually like numb or like deactivate through like different like catheter procedures. Like, you know, they can actually Mm -hmm. go in and then test people and do all sorts of stuff. It's really wild. But most of what we know is because of injury.
3: Yeah. There's another, uh, thing called um tms transmagnetic uh trans like transmagnetic stimulation or mm-hmm. transcranial magnetic stimulation but it's this coil that literally you can put over a part of the head and it kind of inactivates it briefly wow. temporarily and so people have done a lot there's a lot of like really cool research with tms because uh you can kind of mimic some of these brain damages the downside is that it's only surface right so it can only be whatever parts yeah. of the brain is like um close to the surface of the skull because it's a non-invasive right. procedure but um that's like another cool technology that exists but a lot of it is these naturally occurring things for ethical reasons totally. you can't go in and Cut like people's
2: brains out just to yeah. see right what happens what happens we do a lot of yeah. this too with memory testing um for those who are mm-hmm. have been listening for a long time i did a year of like uh neurodegeneration Assessments like neuropsych testing for like Alzheimer's, dementia, other things like that. And the ways these tests work, like Joanna has been saying, like some of the things that there are ways to test, whether you have an issue with encoding, whether you have an issue with retrieval, whether you have an issue with recognition, whether you have an issue with Mm -hmm. all of these different things. And so like, you know, this semantic stuff where it's like, Hey, like I'm going to read you words and you tell me like what this word means or like, I'm going to do those things. I'm going to, or like you can have, you can read a list of things to somebody and then ask them, okay, say them back to me. And that's a question of, um, of in of retrieval, if they're able to retrieve it, but th- and then if you cue them and you're like, did I say this word, A- and they can say yes, you can know they have an issue with retrieval, but or, or like in but the not an issue of encoding, right? They're able to encode it. Mm-hmm. So like when they're primed, when I give them an example of what words might be, I can. It, so it tells you so much more because if you just if you're just like, oh, they don't know it, it's not, it's not actually. Oh,
3: yeah. There's these really like clever diagnostic tests that neuropsychologists use. They're really,
2: use. really, really smart. Yeah. There's even tests, uh, yeah. one of my favorite like, there are tests of memory malingering, right? Because there are ways that people want to seem like they lost their memory, can't stand trial, can't do those things. And so like, it, they, and they don't tell you when they're happening. And so like, there are all sorts of ways to be like no, actually, even somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia would be able to do this task and you are faking. You are malingering mm-hmm. which is what we use in the, in the biz to say faking. That's You're faking illness. Um and y'all can try to outsmart it, but honestly, like they're very, very smart tests. Um and it's that's
3: that's super yeah, interesting. And there
2: are like low, 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 lows where if it's so bad, then you're like not it, it's like no, nobody gets this bad. We have people with like advanced like dementia who are able to do this test and you are Yeah not. So it's really yeah. it's really, really interesting.
3: That's awesome. Um so another thing that I was interested in was basically this end scene, right, which is Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. uh has kind of cut out any refreshing or like any log of Adam Sandler's character. But yeah, she has some understanding of what his face mm-hmm. looks like. She dreams, mm-hmm. she says she dreams about mm-hmm. him. Um and that suggests some uh improvement. You know, Improvement or, like, ability to retain new memories, even if it's not conscious mm-hmm. totally, mm-hmm. which is sort of uh, realistic in the sense that with anterograde amnesia, it really is that conscious memory that she can't remember his right. name, she can't, like, know who he is, but there is this kind of subconscious or, like, unconscious, like, like, memory of him. But I, I looked into some studies about, like, social relationships in amnesia patients, mm-hmm. Um, And so there are some studies that show that they're capable of learning whether new people are associated with positive versus negative outcomes. Oh, interesting. So they may may not remember the person, but they can feel like a general sense of like good or bad about them. Um, There's also this like ability to grow more comfortable or like they seem to grow more comfortable with certain people and objects following repeated exposure. Um, this was that was done in a study of, of patients with Korsakov syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this Clive Wearing documentary, which is on YouTube, it's really good. Um, basically, he has this seven second memory. He married uh, his wife 18 months before this encephalitis mm-hmm. uh, happened, before this, this like, uh, he lost his memory. And he sees when he sees her and it's, like, so... I don't know. He's so overwhelmed with his love for right. her. But he doesn't really know anything about her besides the 18 months that he had. And so he doesn't know, like, what she does for a living. Right. Where she lives because he's in, uh, like, a, a brain unit, like, a facility. Um, and, uh, but... And you see throughout this, like, documentary, every time he sees her, he literally lights up and just, like, is knows he loves her Mm -hmm. but doesn't really know her and he literally can't remember anything after seven seconds and um it's really interesting you should like youtube it um but that to me like this ability to love or or like remember love or access love or like know that that part you know that that part is like this this there's the limbic system is involved there's this like unconsciousness like knowing your feelings as opposed to like being able to name everything about this person sort of implicit Um, like
2: unconscious associations that you have
3: yeah and I don't know to me I was like okay it's possible that this part of the movie is not that unrealistic
2: yeah I mean like and I think I I really love that you also just made the point that like she's maybe healing and this like process is slow and like you know y'all we said we don't know that much about memory we really don't know that much about dreams Right. And like when she says these things are coming to her. So it's very possible that this is part of her like brain healing and that, you know, a lot of memory is unconscious, right? Like that thing where you'll you'll smell something and you'll be like, Oh my God, what is that Mm -hmm. like that what is that smell? It's so familiar, but I can't figure it out and you just can't place it. Like it's very possible that Drew Barrymore is having a lot of these like tip of the tongue, almost retrieval moments as she like, you know, more and more as it goes on where she's like, No. I mean, it is indicative that like She's able to watch a tape at the end and then all of a sudden like leave her like little room, her little cabin and be like, oh, I'm in the Arctic and everything's fine. Right. So she's got this like underneath drive when like if I woke up tomorrow and was like, oh, here's a video about how you have no memory. Also, you're in the Arctic studying. I'd be pretty excited, probably, actually. Um, But like other people would be weirded out. Um, Yeah. And so like I do. Yeah. Like I don't think it's. um, You know, horrific. Like inaccurate. I mean it's a very romanticized version. It's yeah. super romanticized. They,
3: they I do give like, an example I, in the
2: movie as well of a guy with ten with ten second memory. Right. It's not good. Which it's just for the butt of jokes, not. actually. They just use right, his right, like disability exactly. to, to make jokes.
3: <sighs>
4: <sighs>
3: yeah. Sorry, you were saying Um I I was reading this article about basically how amnesia is portrayed in Hollywood films and um, it was kind of really funny I this is how I want to end and then we'll go over to like the research that you mm-hmm. did but there's this really like <laughs> I don't know this is just me and like being a nerd but sometimes when you're reading an academic article do you ever just like read something where the person is so clearly throwing shade mm-hmm. but like it's not immediately obvious because it's written in such an intellectualized yeah, yeah, way yeah. but you yourself you're like oh my god that was like such burn. a burn So this is, I have to just like, uh, this person, um, Sally Baxendale, 2004, I have to just cite her, Uh, but basically, it's like talking about how 51st dates, uh, you know, it's unrealistic about this memories being obliterated by sleep and awakening to this kind of clean slate every morning. Um, And so in this movie um, Adam Sandler attempts to woo Drew Barrymore Who forgets their previous encounters with each new day And the quote is Some viewers might envy Miss Barrymore's ability To forget her romantic encounters with Mr. Sandler But her affliction seems to be the result of a head injury Rather than the unconscious suppression of traumatic memories (laughs) And I was like, ooh, bird
2: Savage (laughs) drag her.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I just love that and I just had to talk yeah.
2: about it. Yeah. that is really good.
3: <laughs> this is like published. <laughs>
2: um, wow. Uh yeah, brutal. Um I decided to really um make this about racism because I was like
3: I mean, I it's hard to ignore. Well, and and here's
2: the thing. You know, you, you name something right at the like right after the midpoint, we watched the film and we both were really struck by like, "Oh my god, this movie is so horribly offensive." Right? This movie is yeah. like how how is the scene is okay? And that mm-hmm. folks is psychology, right? Like the idea that something that used to be okay, we we have now sort of recalibrated the norms of like what is acceptable. Um, and mm-hmm. why things are unacceptable or why things are acceptable have, have changed. And so I actually found an article um, that from 2013, so like pretty recent, um, called Learning to Make Racism Funny in the Colorblind Era.
0: And mm. this is an
2: ethnography, which as we mentioned recently, so this is like a sociologist who went in right. and explored the, the culture of stand-up comedy and to to learn more about the performance strategies and the production and reproduct- reproduction of racist jokes in public. So, this That's and awesome. this article, I mean speaking of shade, this article mm-hmm. goes in. And so what this article is really trying to talk about is understand the ways in which stand-up comics, right? Um com- comedy in general gets to sort of exist um kind of outside of many of the rules of society. Right. And it works. And often Mm -hmm. people say it works best because it's sort of on the fringes where it's like people that are able to look in on society from the outside and then actually provide commentary that people find kind of like surprising, fun, exciting, interesting, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so what this looks at though is in terms of race with jokes. And so understanding that like, um, you know, the, the issues for, for those who are brand new to understanding how to be respectful of other people and other cultures and other races, um, <laughs> the issue with a lot of these jokes is that the jokes rely on blatant racial ethnic stereotypes that are perceived in like quote deficiencies or mm-hmm. using otherness as the butt of the joke, right? The joke is how not white these people are, which sometimes people think is like okay to, to use, and in some cases, it, it may be. However, the, we're gonna, we're going to talk about what some of those ex- exceptions really are. But that that just using things to name that these other these other folks are so different from normal, even if what we're saying is not necessarily like a quote negative thing, right? Uh, so some stereotypes, for instance, that like. Um, People of Asian descent are good at math, right People are like that's not a negative stereotype, but it's still othering them right, right? It's still putting these mm-hmm. and still um, perpetuates all sorts of things that then are used to enact violence are used to assume all sorts of things culturally decei- uh, like that they're deceitful or that they're you know conniving or that they're whatever right so like even if even stereotypes like intelligence can be used against other cultures so it's really important to be mindful that like anytime you're calling out somebody for not being and again, like this is usually, you know, so much of stand up comedy is told through like such a white lens. Right. And so we are also living in like, again, these are in quotes, but like this like colorblind era, right? Especially we were raised and we've talked a little bit about this. We were raised in an era in which people were trained to say, we don't see race. I don't, Absolutely. I don't view other people as different. Yeah. Um, and so what we've essentially ended up in is now racism has to be subtle, covert and quote colorblind. And mm-hmm. so, while racism used to get to be overt, and in the history of comedy, y'all, uh, I mean, like minstrel shows and different things like that, where blackface was very common, um, and in fact, there was such a we, we can't come from such a backwards time in this country that that blackface and having characters in blackface in films was seen as progress at the time because at least their character, right? At least their black. I and mean, this is stories. West Side
3: Story that we talked right, about. Right? Oh,
2: that's right. Go back. Go back, y'all. Week one. <laughs> um, yeah. Were you going to say something else?
3: No, no, that was like, literally was was at the time people were like, oh my gosh, they're showing yeah. uh, the story of Puerto Rican people, they're sh- except they're showing they the only story. cast one actual Puerto Rican person. Right, they
2: only cast one actual Puerto Rican person. It's messy at it's messy at Bessie, y'all. Um, so <laughs> uh, the thing is, in stand-up comedy, it's kind of one of these last uh, vestiges of it's one of the places that people are most likely to talk about race and that's also often because we entered this colorblind era in which it's impolite to describe someone's race and one of my favorite phrases that people often use is like my friend who happens to be black (laughs) like these kinds of things where it's like we're so afraid uh, you know as a culture to discuss race and to other someone that we now you know don't do it at all we claim to be colorblind which again fraught problematic untrue Um, Again, very, very untrue. We have lots of psychological studies that demonstrate that. But in comedy, what we have is this phenomenon in which people are able to go on stage and tell racist jokes. And some of those people are uh, people of color. Some of those people are making jokes about their own cultures, Mm
0: -hmm. which
2: of course, uh, in some ways allows white people to feel more comfortable thinking about their racism. And in other cases, it's white people, uh, it's ways in which like, white folks try to engage in these stereotypes, but it doesn't work, right? And so, like, how, how to do this? So, um, this paper essentially argues that comics make racist discourse palatable by learning to employ strategies of talk which are intended to circumvent the current constraints on racial discourse in public. That is almost word for word uh, the, the thesis from this paper, which again, is by um, Raul Perez. So uh, he's essentially is saying that these strategies are different from how we publicly talk about race because we get to code it in humor. So he goes in. You know, uh-huh.
3: sorry, this is about like stand-up comedy, but it's really reminding me of like sitcoms. So yeah. like the person that comes to mind the most is Tina Fey. Yes, um, and I, gosh, another person who I used, to, like, I like really looked up to. N- grew up admiring and looking up to so much and really reflecting now on a lot of her work it was really there's so much of her comedy relies on the use of stereotypes but either through plot devices that were like oh no we're not supporting this
4: mm-hmm.
3: right this is an unlikable thing that the character did right. but we're still showing it and we're still writing mm-hmm. it and we're still showing a white woman in blackface like or a white man in blackface several times throughout right. the series like but it's part of the character and we're showing that it's not okay but we're still doing it right you know the character
2: I mean? is seen as foolish therefore right. and i mean like that's the thing too and at the end of the day what this is they it is jokes perpetuating racism that white people are profiting mm-hmm. on right like that's right. that's the sort of issue here um and so like one of the things that now we, we sit in is this weird paradigm that um that uh, academics and scholars refer to as this racism without racists, right? So we can acknowledge mm-hmm. that there is inequality, but we can't say anyone is racist. So right. we try to engage, it, you know, we understand that racism continues to exist and has negatively, negative impacts, but no it's one- It's like a blameless-, it's blameless. Yeah, And so some of that shows that like there's this new race talk that has existed uh, that that using words like urban or referring to, you know, changing issues from like specifically proactively anti-black to just making it a question of crime in, quote, inner city communities, right? Where it's all of this coding that we've removed race without actually removing race. Um, And we do it. Because it makes people feel more comfortable. Because we're so opposed to talking about race, and I mean, I am sure many folks that are listening to this have heard people say things like, "Oh, ever since the Black Lives Matter movement started in you know 2015, as you know, capital B, capital L, capital M, not there have been mm-hmm. movements for decades and and you know centuries, but the capital BLM uh, movement." I've heard so many people say, like, "I really think this is actually like making people feel more." separate right like the more we talk about this mm-hmm. actually drives drives more racist uh, uh, rhetoric when it's like no this just a white person who says that a of all or yeah. or it's a person of color who's so tired of having to take care of white people feeling uncomfortable that they're like you know what honestly I'd rather just not talk about it right Right. And so in their own defensiveness are like I don't want to talk about this either because I have to take care of everybody in these spaces and so um you know there's a lot of the, we see a lot of this in politics, we see a lot of this in comedy um and so like there the you know the way that racism kind of works is often this idea of like su- it's called the superiority theory of of humor and so mm-hmm. what it it just exists to um dominate other people, and so it's been used for for a million years. The minstrel shows did this um during the civil rights period um you know. Uh, There's a lot of ways in which people continue to do things like blackface and the reason you know We've talked about this a little bit the reason blackface the reason um, Cultural appropriation in terms of clothing in terms of accent in terms of any of these things is problematic um, Is not because Those things are bad right where you know Imitating black skin in and of itself is not bad the issue is that people are discriminated against for having dark skin Therefore, for somebody right. to put it on in a way where they can profit off of it and then take it back off later. That's the issue, right? It's,
3: it's the dominant like culture that is uh, benefiting from something that has right. marginalized or oppressed another group right. of people. And it's so
2: important to be thinking about comedy as we do in the case of somebody like Adam Sandler who made probably 15 to 20 million dollars off of this film. Mm-hmm. And this film is... Directly, right? We're seeing a lot of what I mean. We're talking about minstrelsy. We're talking about these things, right? Rob Schneider is in is in brownface. He is. There are so many negative stereotypes against him. He, you know, there are so many things that I don't even need to like. In you know, there there are classist issues. There are racist issues. There are sexist issues. There are, uh, you know, intellectual like questions about him. Yeah. Right? He's never taken seriously. But the reason this was this got to got to fly was because. And the reason we get to, like, it's, it sinks in, it got, to, it got to fly under the radar in terms of being proactively offensive is because he's, he's his friend, right? right? So we see this as, no, no, but they're good friends. So that right. means this can't be an exploitative relationship when the exploitative relationship is actually not between Adam Sandler and Rob Schneider's character. The exploitation is Adam Sandler, white guy. Rob Schneider, apparently uh, also Filipino, but you know, phenotypically white in many ways, um, are are profiting off of a culture that has been so subjected, so oppressed, colonized, like pushed to the brink of, you know, starvation. The communities are so deeply marginalized uh, on the islands of Hawaii, especially, um, that we're looking at this and just a white guy gets to make millions of dollars off of this. Um, And so with all of this being said, um, you know, th- historically, actually, after the civil rights movement of the sixties, um, a lot of things. So people, and when it you, when it was no longer okay for you to proactively speak out about racism, you were uh, or as a racist, right? You weren't able to proactively right. identify as anti-black because that publicly, the the public discourse on it shifted. Then they started something called, um, which are called uh, elephant jokes, which is coded for black folks so people would tell jokes about elephants when they would use the stereotype. they would they would basically a way to tell a joke that is offensive and hurtful to black people but being like it's not about black people right and then you can also gaslight people by being like why are you offended oh if you think that that's about black people that seems like it's on you right that seems right. if that seems harmful to like you
3: you're the one buying into the stereotypes you're the
2: one buying into the stereotypes you're the issue here and so, um, the history of this stuff, y'all, I mean, I'm flying through it, but I, this is a 28 page paper and I loved reading it. Um,
3: that is fascinating. I'll, I'll yeah. definitely put
2: the link, but so, um, what's super, so uh, critical humor studies is its own kind of thing, but uh, basically, you know, many people argue that some jokes are essentially harmless. And some jokes are race-based and walk a fine line between challenging racial inequality and strengthening hegemonic notions of race. So Mm. distinguishing between what is racist and what is anti-racist behavior um, and humor, um, it it really just starts to look at, okay, how do we, who are we holding accountable? Who looks foolish in this joke? And um, sort of where are we sitting in this ideological denial? Right, where are we sitting yeah. in terms of where it goes? How exaggerated is this racial humor, um, and understanding that if this ethnic humor exists, is it specifically disparaging? Right. Um, so yeah, A- and now as we start to look, right, we're we're looking at that superiority theory. We're looking uh, now at something called incongruity theory, right, which is essentially starting to say that like if that when we see if we have enough experience that something can exist as incongruent to our own experience and can be therefore seen as funny because it's so strange and different. But the issue is that if that we're so entrenched in the superiority theory that, um, we don't see the joke as the exception. We see the joke as the rule. Mm. Um, so yeah, so, so in general, white folks, um, have tried for a long time to engage in race-based humor. Um, Amy Schumer, I think, has done a. a uh, she'll do jokes where she will jokingly talk about how, like, it, she'll she'll make herself, and she does this a lot, where she makes herself kind of the butt of the joke, and she'll right. do it by saying um, things that are offensive. But the the character she's sort of playing is a stupid person, right? She's like obviously right. um, being an idiot, right? And one of them, I remember, like, a, this is a fairly fairly unoffensive but like example of this is like she was like oh and i know this can't be racist because i asked all of my black friend right and so like these jokes where you're like okay so you're naming that you're you are not a reliable source and again and i think amy schumer has done some of this well i think she has done some of this poorly i think you know famously louis ck did some of this very well and has done a lot of this very poorly and done a lot of other things very very poorly yeah um and interestingly, so when it comes to uh, people of color making these jokes, I mean, two of the most successful comedians of all time, Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle, both sort of had these moments where they, started, where they both have very publicly named that they found a real crisis about weight. Is my comedy, who is consuming my comedy? Yeah. And therefore, is my comedy where I'm able to make jokes about black people the black experience where i am able to give examples of black people being foolish because just like we talked about last week with crazy rich asians right intracultural diversity is far broader than intercultural right there's more diversity Mm -hmm. within a community than between communities and so there are foolish people of all races and so for a person to make jokes about foolish people within their culture, within their community, is not inherently harmful. However, the narrative, when you're using already oppressed communities and cultures, and it is then being consumed by white folks who then sort of contribute to this oppression, right? And so there, and, and there's-
3: Yeah, and perpetuating. Right, it's,
2: it, it is perpetuating this thing where, um, and Dave Chappelle has also talked about like, I made a lot of money, I got paid a lot of money, I also made a lot of money for a lot of other people. And that was sort of, and again, Dave Chappelle, hugely transphobic. This is not, uh, uh, you know, a a clear all for Dave Chappelle and his nightmarish uh, politics and comedy, because now he is sitting in very firmly in this camp that he gets to say horribly offensive things, quote, to draw attention to the problem when in fact he is perpetuating harmful narratives about trans folks and then acting as though trans folks being harmed and feeling harmed and hurt by his narratives somehow is only making the problem worse. He's right. taking no. Anyways, um, Robin Tran, actually, if y'all want to just read uh, a trans uh, woman of color, she's also a stand-up comedian. She's very funny. She, I, her Twitter is always her, just sort of being like, uh, what? Like, and just sort of pointing out all the ways in which people are. What's her name? Uh, Robin Tran. She's wonderful. Okay, cool. Um, I really, really like her. Uh, and she has great, great comedy. Um, but she's always pointing out these things, where essentially, you know, wealthy, wealthy, wealthy comedians at this point, she feels, are often just trying to prove, all the time, that they're worth the millions of dollars that they've gotten, which therefore is sort of unfunny. And so mm-hmm. this and this uh, paper really looks at this idea of the position of privilege as a comedian is uninteresting. Right? We want to laugh. At or with an underdog, right? It's yeah. very hard to laugh at or with someone who we quote like a- admire, who we see as like uh, privileged, and so um, you know, like they're, uh, like th- there's a there's sort of a a thing that people say where it's like attractive people can't be funny, right? It's very hard to <laughs> root for someone when they are attractive whiteness works a very similar way, right? Where, not that it's mm-hmm. hard to laugh at somebody who is white, but when you start to talk about race and you're demonstrating your own privilege, your own otherness in that sense, you really, right. when you as a white person draw attention to race, you make people uncomfortable because you are now profiting off of these things. And this is, uh, you know, as, as recently actually in 2011, Daniel Tosh of Tosh.0 said, I am not a misogynistic and racist person. But I found I find those jokes funny, so I say them.
3: Yeah, he's. I think he fits squarely in this camp for sure. This like, you know, uh, men whose like things that they created, whose products like shaped my yeah twenties watching them Absolutely. with the uh, straight white men. Yeah,
2: and this world is still dominated by white white straight men, and so um, you know, like, I, and I have some friends that are. Sarah Silverman has said this really really well when like people are saying and I think I've said this on the podcast actually Sarah Silverman has said uh, to people who are like oh it's so hard to get staffed on a show unless you're a person of color oh it's so hard to get booked on a tour unless you're a person of color and Sarah Silverman sort of was like why don't you just repeat the things that we've always said and just to to people of color which is just be undeniable be better like you must just be so talented that no one We'll say no to you. Mm. And that's kind of like the, the general message that, that we're starting to sit at. It's like to these, like, uh, it is now harder than, and I'm putting an ellipsis in here and I'm going to fill it in in a second, right? It is harder for white straight men to be funny. And I'm adding, I'm just going to insert into that ellipsis, it is harder now. And it's only harder mm-hmm. now because they're sitting in such a place of privilege that you have to, you have to, you have so much. It's like walking into a room with a stack of cash in your hand and trying to be like, hey, pay me money. When it's like, no, you've already got a lot of money. You're already coming in here with a lot. It's hard for me to want to give you more. But if you're good enough, if you're funny enough, I'll do it, right? If you, if you demonstrate to me that you are worthy of my time and attention, you'll get it. But the problem is you can't use oppression to fuel yourself. You've already got such an advantage there that people are less engaged now.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, to your point before, stand-up comedy is this outsider perspective looking in and reflecting on culture. And it is very hard to do that when you are the dominant group profiting and benefiting from the way that culture is set up. So it's hard to critique a system that you, like... Benefit from. Yeah. And it makes you less uh, of like, you know, just your critique has less value because you're the one that's perpetuating it. Right. And, and most people then it.
2: blame this concept of political correctness um, right. and essentially like say that people are just not willing to have fun or something when in fact you're using that just as a, as a device that can support, you know, racist discourse like it's not uh, it's not a good look and that's the thing too like we're talking about people who make millions and millions and millions of dollars I also think it's interesting that we name that like another stereotype within comedy specifically within white comedians is that uh, Jewish people and people of Jewish descent are very successful in comedy I think it is worth noting that like guess what they live outside of mainstream Christian American culture like that that absolutely makes sense right that like yeah. They are having an, a different and an othered cultural experience, which therefore gives them the ability to sort of look in on, you know, what's going on. And the, you know, the the author of this, um, Perez, finishes by by basically saying that like when people are laughing at stereotypes, which is often the currency that comedy sort of relies on, um, mm-hmm. might suggest that it's appropriate racial discourse. Um, you know, at the macro level, like the humor industry is profiting on, on this. And the yeah. issue is not only that like real racists might feel emboldened then because of this racist comedy, because here's the thing, like y- you tell the joke and your joke's gonna be told at the water cooler tomorrow, right, like you, you know, mm-hmm. this stuff really filters down all the way through and that like the idea of like just more critical assessment to race-based humor isn't an issue of politically correct discourse, but it's just the kind of thing that we need to be doing to just challenge commonly held notions that are like just a joke, right? right. I, oh God, the worst example, that we, we, we we're hard on Tina Fey, which again, we should be, we should be incredibly, we should hold her to the same standards as everyone else. I mean, The Office is like one of the worst, most yeah. cringe examples of this. Friends Absolutely. does a lot of this, where like the idea mm-hmm. of oh, this person's such an idiot. Let's watch what they do. I mean, the office is way worse than Friends. Um, friends is very white. Uh, friends just doesn't acknowledge race. Um, right. Whereas the office like profits on sort of these things.
3: 100%, yeah. Yeah.
2: That is where I went in, because I was so into this.
3: I love it. Because I think it highlights a theme that has been recurring, which is like, I... You know, my memory of this movie was different. I enjoyed parts of it, but some of it was so hard to watch now. Yeah. And why? And why is it especially the case with comedies?
2: Right. And and it is especially the case because it is uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? It is Mm -hmm. that we think it's okay and it's silly and it's whatever. And again, in this one, he ultimately is like a guy you're supposed to, you know, Rob Schneider is a guy you're supposed to like. Right? And so it's right. like, well if I'm supposed to like him, then like the assumptions about him can't be all that bad. Right. It's not an evil Or at least film. he's
3: not maybe not he's someone we're supposed to like, but at least we're supposed to trust him because the character we're supposed to like likes him. Yes. Yeah.
2: Oh totally. You're right. Like he, you don't think you wanna yeah. The character you're supposed to like likes him, and he does not. You know, walk onto screen, and you think bad things will happen. Although you might think right. buffoonish, clownish things will happen, which of course, rut row right. hilarity right. ensues.
0: Exactly.
2: Um, warning. Laugh alert. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It's uh
3: yeah. It's it, it That's a good that's a good article. I I think it's good to to talk about that and and have some like actual critical theory to talk about it because I think that helped give some language and context to like a lot of the the um like incongruence or like the the issues I've been having watching these movies, mm-hmm. you
2: know? It makes sense. Yeah. And we are more and more sensitized Um, my, the, the executive director at UCLA counseling and psych services is like an incredible scholar and a, and a really talented psychologist. And she sort of uses this metaphor of like, you know, we're all born into a world with poison gas and some people just have a mask on like a gas mask and don't smell it. Right. And like, we are all, we all have different, there's a bunch of different kinds of poison out there and we're all born with a different set of filters on our mask. Some Mm -hmm. people have an awful lot of filters. Um, And so they don't smell the poison gas at all. Um, And some people are born with little to no filters. And so Mm -hmm. like, you know, you just don't know you're being poisoned. Um, Right. You just can't smell it. And like, I think about that a lot. And and comedy is such a like, you know, laughter is the best medicine. It's the spoonful of Mm -hmm. sugar. The problem is that the thing, the medicine that's going down is still a joke about, you know, perpetuating...
3: About the poison.
2: About the poison, and the, and not actually doing anything to. It's actually selling more poison, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's just putting out photocopies of the poison for everybody to look at. That's a weird mixed metaphor, but I'm sticking with it.
3: <laughs> I like it. Thank you. <laughs> <sighs> we yeah, hated yeah. it, but I loved
2: hating it with you.
3: Yeah, I really totally. did. Yeah, I mean, again, like it's not uh, you know nothing is like black and white either, right? Like there were uh, parts of, of this. Of course, you're making it about race. That, a, <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> oh man. Um I set myself up for yeah. that. I you know, there were parts of this movie that like felt nostalgic and that were pleasant, but there's just so much like the way that I don't know. Yeah. And and the way that I have to reckon with this living in my mm-hmm. memory mm-hmm. system. <laughs> my my memories. Mm-hmm. And just wondering what havoc it has wrought on my sense of how the world works, mm-hmm. I think. Has been you know, it's been a, a deep week. Wild. Yeah.
2: Wild. <laughs> it is wild. Uh
3: do you uh, have a clinical corner?
2: Uh the clinical okay. corner is really I'll do I'll be really, really brief and just say so one of the things that um when we talk about treatment for things like uh You know, amnesia, Alzheimer's, dementia is something called memory care. So, if you're looking for care for somebody that you know with things like dementia, you want to start looking at like memory care um, uh, facilities. Um, And so, the goal of a lot of this stuff is, you know, ideally, and they do some of this actually quite well in the movie. So, one of the things is just providing an ongoing context for their experience with personal meaning, community, choices, and enjoyment, Mm -hmm. right? Like, really giving that the ideal sort of principles, you really want to be designing activities to do with a person and not for them. Yeah. Um, and that you want to respect the autonomy, the, pre- the, the preferences of, uh, of the person, um, even as a means of just like honoring their affinity for solitude, right? They may just want to be alone. And that what yeah. you really want to do is optimize things like quality of life, functional independence, health and safety. Um You want to provide support for loved ones and care providers, uh, and you really want to do you want to reduce hospitalizations um, and and again, this is a bit a little a bit of a bias the The paper that I found also encourages a reducing psychotropic drug use, which is essentially um, you know, the less meds you have somebody on, the better. But again, the one mm-hmm. of the main principles of um, ethical psychology is what we call the least restrictive mode of care. So you don't Mm -hmm. want somebody to be restricted any more than they need to be. We talked about this a little bit with like Britney Spears, right? Where it's like, guess what? Like like, This is not like a conservatorship is not the least restrictive form of care. Um, And you always want it to be Just uh, You want everyone to have as much freedom as possible. So you want it to be person-centered. You want to focus on what they can do, right? Uh, Really focusing on on what their abilities still allow and making sure that you're still letting them do those things that they can still do. Um, And so that's just kind of like a general... Uh, a general principle of like what we do think about in clinical psychology about care for people with, and usually, I mean, the most common form of memory care is for Alzheimer's or dementia, right? This, these kinds of brain injuries right. and terror grade amnesia is not so common. Um, right. it, it's not, I, despite what soap operas would have you believe, right? Like all forms of amnesia are not, are not that that common in the way that it's like, Oh, I got bunked on the head and all of a sudden I don't remember anything and Joanna named it really right. beautifully at the beginning of the podcast or you know the 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 beginning of talking about this movie that like this could be a trauma response this could be inflammation this could be injury to the brain this could be a lot of different things and that um you know the the it's a multifactorial kind of thing that leads to it
3: yeah I, I like what you said too about I mean autonomy being such an important part of it and um really like emphasizing like abilities Mm -hmm. versus like the lack of ability and i think to tie it back to the movie like that mural and like painting the wall white every day or allowing her to be like this art teacher at the brain injury like institute like giving she has an expertise she has something that she's incredibly gifted at and giving her the opportunity to be practicing that i mean it you can see that that has huge impacts on her quality of Absolutely.
2: life. Absolutely. She's so much happier when she's able to engage in her own, when she starts journaling to herself, right? She is yeah. able to, and it's, it's, and it's so much more grounding for her. She's so much happier mm-hmm. because she's able to say, These, This is what matters to me. This is what's important to me. And right. in her own right. words, in her own handwriting, tell herself what she needs rather than her, you know, her, her brother and her father kind of took that opportunity, that option. Away from yeah. her, which essentially is really just to make them more comfortable because they, they don't want to have yeah. to deal with it rather than working with her to say, how would you want to get this news tomorrow? And they really do that. Yeah,
3: although not to say that they're not like well-intentioned. Oh, they have right? great intentions. I'm sure they are. But yeah.
2: the problem yeah. is that their good intentions are not uh, inclusive of her own needs, right? She, they're not actually yeah. asking for her feedback they're deciding, right. that, okay, we love you so, so, so much that we're going to sacrifice our whole lives just to rebuild every day for you, which is, like, yeah. well-intentioned and wrong.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Totally. Yeah.
2: It's the first time that ever happened that somebody was well-intentioned but wrong.
3: <laughs> that never happened.
2: Yeah. Um, well, y'all, we do have a bit of an announcement. Mm-hmm. this we are midway through august we started january 1st we are in and out of town the two of us for the next few weeks so we are ending season one here but we will yeah. be back backity back 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 september 6th we're just gonna take a few weeks off um and we'll be back in four weeks uh with season two
3: yeah and hopefully like more surprises i mean we're gonna take a little time to reflect and um this has been what 30 Two.
2: 32 33 episodes were somewhere in there yeah We've done like, a lot of episodes
3: I'm, yeah and I think um it kind of coincides with some of our travel plans but also like we want to reflect and like get some really fun good stuff for y'all and so we'll be yeah. back yeah in about a month we'll be back in about we'll a month really we're gonna have some, some surprises have
2: surprises guests a little bit of of extra little bonus content we're gonna have all sorts of things mm-hmm. and we're so excited to bring that to you um and, you know, we're so proud of what this first season has been. Like, I could get really emotional. We hit
3: 10,000. We 10,000
2: 10, people who've downloaded it. And I think of this like every, like 10,000 times people decided to buy a ticket to the show. And that yeah. feels so cool. And it's a show that I'm really proud of what we've done.
3: Same. We send each other yeah. texts, like,
2: almost every week. They're like, I'm
3: so proud of us. I'm so tired, too, but I'm so <laughs> proud of us. Yeah, I mean, this is such, like, a highlight of my week. Same. But, um, yeah. And we'll
2: be back. It's so good. In just four we'll weeks. We'll be back. In the meantime, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe,
3: like, Tell a friend. Tell, tell two, two friends. friends.
2: Listen to the episodes that you haven't done. I'm also going to do some re on some of the old audio. So if you just want to go back and listen again um, in yeah, the next few if weeks. You, if
3: the first time you were like, I can't, maybe give it maybe another give shot. Maybe give
2: it another shot. Um, give me a few weeks, though. Maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, give yeah. me a second. I mean, I'll, I'll work backwards so y'all can, too. Um, so, uh, <laughs> But, yeah, we're, we're so happy. We can't wait to be back September 6th. And uh, keep it real, oh. y'all. Keep it real. Psych! Ha ha ha